John Event, if you can hear me, thank you. Isn't that a great song? The title of my subject for today is Hope for Scattered Aliens and Strangers in a Hostile World. And I'd like you to turn with me to First Peter chapter two. And beginning to read at verse 11 through verse 18. Reading, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slandered you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, and only to those who are... Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And God will bless His Word to us. I think that one of the big questions of our time is how does one live as a Christian, say in Las Vegas, in San Francisco, in San Ramon, or in the state of Orissa in India, or in Afghanistan, or in Mosul in Iraq, or in dozens of other places where the climate is hostile to Christians. It was this kind of question that the people in the five provinces mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. This is the kind of question they were asking. And Peter, in an absolute masterful way, tells us in this passage, first of all, who we are. And secondly, how we are to live. And Peter goes on to talk about the chief human relationships in life, in the place dominated by the Roman Empire and ruled by a tyrant like Nero. How would you like to live in a time like that? Relationships such as being a member of an alien minority or living as a servant in a heathen household or simply as a wife, a husband, all of these just simple, ordinary relationships. How do you handle these relationships in a hostile world? And our great example Throughout our passage is is on an active 
and patient submission and a disciplined devotion freely given because of our love for our Lord. Let's go directly to the text, what we read just a few moments ago, and see what the Apostle is going to tell us. So we begin in verse 11 of chapter 2 with an urgent plea by the Apostle. Beloved, beloved, I urge you. And there seems to be in Peter's plea a tenderness and gentleness by a man whose name means a rock. Formerly an impulsive man. A man whose character could be described as a a bit rough. Yes, he's the strong rock man, but the years have mellowed him and toned him down. The rough edges are smoothed away a bit. And now we see him fulfilling the words of Jesus spoken to him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee when he said to Peter, Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. And so he says, Beloved, I urge you. Beloved. Why does Peter have such an urgency in his plea? Well, Peter tells us in verse 11, fleshly lusts are waging a war against the soul. And Peter doesn't want to see the sheep injured or hurt in any way. So in verses 11 and 12, he gives us three reasons why we need to discipline and direct our lives. First of all, in verse 11, we are reminded that in this world, we are aliens and strangers. Do you ever feel that way? Our real citizenship is in heaven. And he tells the believers that this world is not our home. You know, we're just a passing through, as the song says. And the word alien describes those who have no rights, no legal status. And the word stranger emphasizes our temporary status in this world. We're here only for a short time. And if we were citizens in this world, we would indulge in the same pattern and the same kind of behavior as the worldlings live. And as Jesus taught His disciples in John 17, yes, we're in the world, but we are not of the world. And even though we temporarily live in this world, we are in reality called out of the world And it is for this reason that there should be a difference between us and the world. There is a difference between a Christian world view and the view that people who are not believers have. We are told in, secondly, in verse 11, that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts because it affects our physical and spiritual well-being. Perils still confront us as Christians. 
Perils still confront us in our spiritual lives that come from our fallen human nature. Lust is an inordinate desire. It is that which we use to try to satisfy our wildest instincts. And by fleshly lusts, we mean our selfish, natural, and often vicious desires. The flesh, you know, does have desires. If it is our desire to get drunk, we get drunk. My grandson lives in a dorm in Cal Berkeley. And Saturday night is get drunk night. And so he spends Saturday night alone in his nearly empty dorm. And he did say, you know, he gets a little lonely. So if you remember, pray for Greg. A very bright boy studying molecular cell biology. He plays in the band and he's found two or three other Christians who also are other people who are Christians in that band. And so they come together to pray. So if one's desire is to get drunk, you get drunk. That's the way it is. If one's lust is to smoke pot, that is what one does. I know a middle-aged man who is addicted to smoking pot. And is he happy? No. Does he live a productive, fulfilled life? No. And it's hurtful to see him losing the battle. And this word war that we find in this text in verse 11 is full of meaning. It gives the idea of a march of an army against a city. The war of the Greeks against Troy might be a good example When the Greeks could not penetrate the defenses of Troy, they employed the idea of a wooden horse, which I would suggest is much like the fleshly lusts that war against the soul. They kind of worm themselves in. The fleshly lusts are very destructive to the inner life. And they attack it relentlessly and conquer it and lead into captivity and cutting off much of one's moral strength. And Peter says, I urge you, I urge you, beloved, to abstain from fleshly lusts. Indulge the flesh and you are weak. Curb it by self-restraint and you are strong. How may we overcome these fleshly lusts? First of all, I'd like to say that restraint is possible. It is true that we are children of the fall. And so we come into life with the taint of evil in us. That is what Genesis chapter 3 teaches us. However, it is also true that no temptation 
can happen to us, but such as is common to man. We all here in this room are subject to the same kinds of temptations. Ours is not some unique, nude-fangled temptation that comes only to a very, very few. That's not the case. There is always the way of escape. And God is able to give deliverance and to keep us from being overcome. And I recommend your underlining in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Secondly, we need to walk in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, walk in the Spirit, and now listen to this, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You will not. You know, it's not enough to resolve to abstain. We need to be in touch with the Spirit of God through prayer, through reading the Scripture, by gathering together with other believers. And we need to be aware of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12. The third reason for a disciplined life is because of our influence for God on unbelievers. Our aim in prayer should be that our enemies, our text calls them slanderers and evildoers. Our our text says that we should come to see our good works, that these uh, slanderers should come to see our good works, and as a result, glorify God. The day of visitation. That's an interesting idea there. The day of visitation that our text talks about, I believe, is a special drawing near of God. And God visits men as a judge and rewards or punishes those that he deems proper. An example I thought of, and maybe you know of the Richmond Rescue Mission. The Richmond Rescue Mission. When the city of Richmond observes their good deeds, they will honor their good works and in so doing glorify God. And it looks like the building and the properties that are now in the hands of the Richmond Rescue Mission will be taken over by the city of Richmond. But the city of Richmond has to provide land and build new buildings for the city of, for the Richmond Rescue Mission. And so, in this sense, a glorification of God and a continuation of a wonderful ministry to the poor. Christians are slandered as evildoers today, and we only have to think of a man by the name of David Brown in Albania, now nearly two years in prison, unjustly charged, The judges have been on a holiday uh, this past month, and therefore no, no civil court proceedings go on. But this man remains in prison. So we pray for David Brown, who was doing a good work. But that work that he was doing is now stopped. He's in prison. In prison. Slandered. 
How are we then to live as Christians in a hostile world? One of the ways the Apostle Peter speaks about is the discipline of submission. And there are at least three areas of submission that Peter talks about. First of all, we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake. Verses 13 through 17. Why should the saints of the first century submit to the likes of Nero or Caligula, that madman, or to any other of the Roman emperors, governors? Why? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Christians need to be willing to submit, not because they have to, but because they are under authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word submit is the Greek word hupotasso, which means to rank yourselves under. It's a military term. And as a private in the army is under a sergeant, and the sergeant is under a second lieutenant, and the second lieutenant is under a captain, and the captain is under the major, and so on. They all are ranked under. And the Christian is very much like the private. He ranks under, or he is to submit as he is ranking under. And I'll say a little bit more about this concept of submission as we move further along in our study. The phrase for the Lord's sake provides the proper Christian motive for such dutiful obedience to conformity. Now, there are two interpretations for this kind of submission. One, because by faith Christians recognize such institutions as divinely ordained, and therefore they render their submission Primarily to the Lord. They're divinely ordained. We submit to that which is divinely ordained. Secondly, because as man the Lord himself was submissive. And therefore Christians ought to follow his example. Should I obey the laws of our country? Should I pay taxes? Should I get a driver's license and obey the rules and laws of the highway? Should I vote? And because I am free, should I only obey the laws I like and set aside those I don't like? The text says, first of all, I am to submit. Verse 13. I am to submit to what? To every human institution. Wow. That's pretty broad. Because as verse 15 is going to point out, it is the will of God. However, if the laws of our human institutions are in conflict with the Scriptures, then as Peter says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. But we have the human institutions that we're to obey And only if they stray away and require us to submit to something which is contrary to the Word of God, then we are to say, no, I will not. 
we are people under authority. There's a whole lot more in this passage that I don't have time to cover. Uh, but I'd just like to have one word about verse 16. Christians should actively enjoy the freedom which is theirs in Christ without abusing it. We are not to abuse our Christian freedom and prerogatives. We should never forget that we need to live as bond servants. We are people under authority. A second area of submission is in verse 18, which instructs a servant or an employee on how to live in a sometimes abusive environment. How do you live in an abusive environment? What do you do? The one message that the Spirit of God had for them might be summarized in just these few words. Submit. Endure. Be subject. Take it patiently. You're going to need a lot of patience. We all are going to need a lot of patience. And I suspect that we've all made mistakes and know what it is to be reprimanded or punished. And the text reminds us in verse 18 that under such circumstances, we have no just ground for complaint. If we made the mistake, if we goofed up, why? Our supervisor might come and say, hey, you flubbed up, you goofed up. We need to take that patiently. We cannot excuse ourselves, nor, put, nor to put the blame on others or on our circumstances. We need rather to take such rebuke patiently, patiently, or as necessary to confess our wrong and ask to be forgiven. On the other hand, sometimes our superiors or employers may be difficult to please. Some always, it seems, finding fault. And though we may be doing a good job, we may meet with nothing but reprimand and rebuke. And even in this case, Peter says, we're to take it patiently. Take it patiently. That's tough. Take it patiently. And please particularly notice verse 21. To hear from the Apostle what our calling is. We have been called with this purpose in view. The innocent sometimes are called to suffer here on earth as though they have done wrong. And this suffering is supremely illustrated in the passion of Christ. And we are told in our passage there that we are to follow in His steps. Following the steps of Jesus. This is not like the ads in magazines which say, Come to Israel and walk in the steps of Jesus. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the steps of Jesus when he was being rebuked by the Roman governor, by the religious and civil authorities. And then being subjected to the most cruel punishment yet, yet devised by man. We're to follow in that kind of setting. The Apostle 
teaches Christ's disciples a few things about suffering. First, I want you to notice the implication of the phrase, since Christ also suffered, in verse 21. The implication there is that suffering is part of our calling because it was first part of His. Christ also suffered. You think you're suffering? Christ also suffered. Have you been going through a hard time? Christ also went through a hard time. He also suffered. Secondly, His suffering was not on His account, but for us, for the good of others. Wasn't thinking about Himself, was for the good of others, for our good, for my good, for your good. That's why He suffered. And thirdly, He provides a precedent, an example for His followers. Suffering is something all believers must expect to share. It is an experience that is to be regarded not with shame and resentment, but with joy and thanksgiving to God. And I want to read you something from 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. These are not easy things. It's very difficult to talk about suffering. As a matter of fact, I have a confession to make. I decided to speak on this passage here during the Lord's Supper. I was going to speak on another subject. But I became convinced as I sang the songs, listened to some of the ministry given, I felt compelled to speak on this on this subject, even though it's a difficult subject to talk about. I don't like to talk about suffering. My flesh instinctively recoils at the idea of suffering. I don't like to suffer. I don't like to get sick. And uh, the Lord has spared me from sickness for a long time. And I think of sickness as a waste of time. I can't do some things if I'm lying down in bed. You know, and I don't like to waste the time. That may sound a little silly, but that's the way I look at it. Well, the third area of submission in chapter 3, which we did not read, verses 1 to 7, that I want to talk about just a little bit, relates to the most intimate of human relationships. And, of course, I refer to the relationship of husband and wife. 
And this area is one of the key passages necessary to our understanding how husbands and wives are to live with each other. And no one needs to tell us that in our generation, we may be watching the death of marriage and an attempt to obliterate the family as we know it. Many things have contributed to the attempted murder being launched against God's basic unit of society. And some of these things are immorality and adultery and pornography and homosexuality and abortion and sterilization and crime and, and the sexual rebellion, etc., etc. And I could go on and on and on. Interestingly, the word immorality in some of the uh, uh, five passages that uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of begins with the word immorality. And that word immorality comes from the Greek word pornea. One of the greatest dangers in society today is the issue of pornography. We have some propositions on the ballot this year on which we are called to render judgment. Whether marriage is between a man and a woman or what else. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. I want to give you a little background on the principle of mutual submission. This verse very clearly tells us that we are to be subject one to another. Again, the word is the Greek word there is hupotasso, which I mentioned earlier, and which means to rank under. As Christians, our whole mentality as we relate to each other should be one of humility and submission. What have we got to be proud of anyway? Here in Ephesians, we have the principle of mutual submission. And this principle continues to the rest of chapter 5 and on to chapter 6. And you will note that the word subject in verse 22 is in italics, which means that the word subject does not appear in the original manuscripts. And what does that omission mean? It means that we get our idea of submission from verse 21, which talks about mutual submission. Thank you. <clears throat> it means that everyone is to practice submission, not just the wives. We are all submitting at some point. Wives are to submit to the loving leadership of their husbands. Husbands are called to bow to the needs of their wives. A father has to bend to the sensitivity and needs of his child so that he does not provoke the child to wrath or to anger. Every family member is an illustration of submission. And John MacArthur has been very helpful in this. And this is what he says. In what way is a husband to respond to his wife? Verse 24 tells us, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, we have it a lot harder than women do. We are to submit 
our very lives for the welfare of our wives. Did I say that right? We men have it harder because we are to submit to the point of giving up our lives. That's not an easy thing to do. There is no greater act of submission than for a husband to do for his wife what Christ did for the church. He gave himself for us in history's greatest act of submission. He bore our sins. He took our place. He died for us. Now, the husband's submission to his wife does not mean that he abdicates the responsibility of leadership. But he helps his wife to bear the burdens. He gets underneath. He ranks under to carry out some of her cares. He's always ready to meet the needs and to sacrifice his own desires for what helps those needs. Now, I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. And I want you to notice how that verse begins. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, In the same way, or likewise, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. In the same way. These words link this new section which what has gone before. Now, what has gone before? What has gone before is the subject of submission to civil government and also submission in the workplace. Here we have submission in the home and a little later we will be thinking of submission in the church. We also have the a great example of submission of the Lord Jesus. Though sinless, he did not retaliate. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He bore our sins in his own body. He kept trusting God. Now listen. In the same way. In the same way as Christ submitted. Wives are to submit. Then you go on to verse 7 of chapter 3. In the same way, husbands. In the same way, husbands. First of all, you have wives. Now you have husbands. And in the same way that Christ submitted, you wives, we husbands, are to submit. In the same way. The passage suggests, just as some masters may be harsh and, per and perverse, as some husbands may be difficult and hard to please. Our passage envisions an unbelieving husband, when we talk about the women, presumably a family originally totally heathen from which the wife only has, to, wife only has so far become a Christian. How is a wife to live in such a situation where her husband is not a Christian. Maybe even, maybe even abusive. How is she to live? Such a non-Christian husband, the text says, 
may be won to accept the faith. So Peter suggests by the silent witness of his wife's behavior. It doesn't say give your husband a strong argument for your rights. It says in verse 1, husbands may be one without a word. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. What is precious in the sight of the Lord is not expensive jewelry, nor designer clothing. Nothing wrong with those necessarily. But what is precious in the sight of the Lord is the hidden person of the heart. And that heart that exhibits a gentle and a quiet spirit. You husbands, likewise. Notice what it doesn't say. And notice what it does say. It does not say, make sure your boss, make sure you're the boss. It doesn't say that to the husbands. It doesn't say, remind the wife that only she is to be submissive. It does not say, only the man has a spiritual gift. It does say, live with your wife in an understanding way. The Christian husband should let his living together with his wife be guided by, guided by an appropriate awareness. An appropriate awareness of her womanliness. He should recognize her more limited physical strength. He should give her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir. Why is all of this so important? So that the prayer life be not hindered. How is your prayer life, men? Women, how's your prayer life? Am I seeing God answer my prayers or are they hindered in some way? Well, time is gone and we've barely touched upon all of the implications. And I think verse 8 says, to sum up, and it gives a great summation there, and I don't have time to cover that. But to sum up, I think the first one is be harmonious. Play on the same key. No discord. But in closing, Peter started out our passage for today calling us beloved. And that is how I'd like to close. Beloved, we live in a hostile world. We live in a hostile world that affects relationships from every level. From every level. Whether it be to every human institution, human government, whether it be in a household where one has, uh, uh, like, in the, like they did in that time when Peter wrote this, where they had uh, 
slaves. I think 50% of the people in Rome were slaves. Slaves were a big profit-making industry. And so whatever relationship we're in, and this is what Peter's talking about, all the relationships of life, including the marriage relationship, as I said, possibly the most intimate of relationships, May we love one another fervently. May we work together well. Let's encourage one another. And when we think of submission, let's not think of it as a club, but rather as a means of helping one another. May the Lord bless us all as we seek to obey Him Because it's for the Lord's sake, as we read before. It's for the Lord's sake, and we want to glorify Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bow bow before You. We bow our heads, we bow our hearts, we bow our knees, and we acknowledge that You are Lord, and we are not. Father, bless every person in this congregation this morning. And Father, we trust that your word will have met some need and that you would bless us. Lord, we do pray for our government, both in the state and in the federal government. And we pray, Father, that uh, in so much as is possible with us, we are to live at peace with all men. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you for today and give you thanks for this gathering together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.